The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. In my 15 years experience as a hospital chaplain, I realized early on that end-of-life care was where the visions and insights about the other side were most likely to be encountered. And no one knows better than that than hospice nurses, who are often there to help the dying with their transition, both physically and spiritually. Our guest today, Jean Keegan Daly, RN, was already naturally empathetic when she became a hospice nurse herself, and her own near-death experience led her to become a dedicated holistic health therapist, counselor, and educator specializing in a mind-body-spirit approach to health and wellness. With more than 50 years' experience, Jean is known as a warm, inspiring, and skillful practitioner who is committed to helping her patients, students, and clients to believe in and realize their own potential for growth and healing. Jean's training also includes national certifications as a practitioner in holistic nursing, imago relationship therapy for singles, couples, and families, and Reiki Healing Mastership. She's also trained in the utilization of relaxation and meditation techniques, interactive guided imagery and visualization, the One Brain Stress Diffusion System, interpersonal communication skills, spiritual introspection, and other integrative healing modalities. Her book, Reflections of a Seasoned Soul, True Stories of Transformation Experienced by an Inspired Hospice Nurse and Impassioned Spiritual Traveler, was published in 2017. Jean, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you very much, Lee. It's great, great to have you here. Uh, so a little on your background first. Uh, Jean, you were born the eldest of six children to a family serious about their Catholicism. Your dad was a policeman, and you helped your mom a lot in raising the younger children. And you write that early on, you wanted to be a nurse. So you started that training at 17, and then you were married by 20. And you had your life pretty much all planned out, you thought, and even had an approving visit from Mary when you were 15. So tell us us, uh, where you were um, in your your growth and, and... what you thought about when you when the Blessed Mother appeared to you? When the Blessed Mother <clears throat> appeared to me, I was about 15 years old. I was in my bedroom, and I was uh, just praying and meditating as, as much as I knew about meditation at the time. And I just felt that I needed to know more than I was taught about God, about life, about death. Uh, My grandfather was very sick at the time, and I knew that he was going to die, and he was a very special person in my life. And as I was just thinking about all of this and wondering when I was going to go to sleep because I had school the next day, I saw this light on the right side of my bed on the wall, and the light formed into a vision of Mother Mary. Hmm. And of course, she was very important in my being raised in the Catholic faith. And I just felt this overwhelming support 
and love. She didn't say anything. She just smiled. And then within a few, it seemed like maybe less than a minute, she was gone. Hmm. But I went right to sleep after that. Did you take that as a confirmation of your um, ex- wanting to explore further rather than just settling for the for the teachings of the church? I, I at the time I did not. It was only later on, years later, when I reflected back on that. At the time, I didn't understand it. I just knew that I was being supported and in myself as a as a being that was really interested in knowing more than I knew. You were uh, a student uh, nurse at 17, and then you were married by 20. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, you write in your book, your husband called you a defender of the down and out. Yes. Did he, did he mean that as a compliment? I believe he did, um, although he thought that I was really, really busy helping other people all the time, kind of taking on their issues and their problems. Um, I felt it was a compliment at the time. Oh. Although I, um, I look back on it now and I realize that he believed, and I now believe, or I have believed for a long time now, that I was really absorbing some of the other people that I thought I was helping. I was really absorbing some of their energy, which was either negative or it was um, very uh, sad. And that seemed to affect me personally in that moment of when I was thinking I was helping people. I didn't know then about how I had been a, for all of my life, I had been a person who could do that. They're called empaths. And I've been told many times I've been an empath my whole life. So when I learned more about empath, then I learned how to protect myself. Yes, it's a very vulnerable position. And uh, perhaps perhaps your husband at the time was jealous of the attention you were giving to other people. Uh, Even as a, well, go ahead and say... I don't know um, that could have been, uh, but I felt that he he saw me more of um, just a, a helper of anyone who asked for help or who I thought needed help. Sometimes people didn't even ask. In those days, I would just offer. You know? <laughs> yeah. I had to learn about that, too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now, even as a Catholic, you're right, you, you were developing an intriguing idea that... Um, we are co-creators of with the divine. Yes. What What did your family think of your new ideas? Well, of course, all of my new ideas were seen as going against what I had been taught. And I wasn't able to explain very well to my family in those early days what exactly I was feeling. I just thought that if... God, if we are part of God, if we are that child of creation, then we must be a co-creator. And I put that together with free will. And I thought, well, we have choice in everything that we do. And some choices are positive for us. Some are negative for us. Some are considered 
uh, bad and sinful and some are considered uh, holy and good. And I just started thinking about that. Well, how, how can I honor that, that part of me that is a co-creator with God? How can I create things? And my hope image of God was changing too. And that was actually changing. You know, when I think about it, I think it was changing after I had the vision of Mother Mary. Hmm. Changing from um, what I believed as a child that God was a being who was loving yet very judgmental and who I could um, please or displease. So there were emotions, human emotions, that were attached to this God that I had learned about. And that was a conflict for me. So this kept, you know, and in those days, I really didn't have anyone to process any of this with. It was just, I was praying all the time for guidance and, and help in understanding what I was feeling. There was yes. a me that, that spiritual, intuitional part of me that was just opening up. And then as a nurse, as a very young nurse, you had a 12-year-old uh, girl die in your arms. Uh, and you refer to that a number of times in the book. It must have had a, quite an impact on you. And how did that affect your feelings uh, about um, about God? Well, it just made me explore more. I just it was so shocking to me because she was my patient. She was only in the hospital for two and a half uh, days. It was actually her third day as my patient. She did not have a definitive diagnosis at the time. She was in an oxygen tent because this was back in the 60s. And she was getting weaker all the time. She had been being treated for an upper respiratory infection. That antibiotics that were used at the time, mostly penicillin, were not very effective. So we were trying to figure out what was going on with her. Why wasn't she responding to the treatment? And... The third day I went into her and she just looked really much sicker. And I wanted to give her some, she was dry in her mouth and I wanted to give her some water through a straw. So I put my arm behind her head and neck to support her as I dripped some water through a straw into her lips and she suddenly went limp and died. And I remember calling for help and the, the team came in um, to try to resuscitate her and it didn't work. She just died. And I was really in shock. I thought, you know, how could this happen? We didn't even give her a diagnosis yet. And it turned out that the diagnosis on autopsy was that she had lung cancer. So that threw me into a real whirlwind. How in the world could a 12 year old girl have lung cancer and die from it? But of course, there were no MRIs or CAT scans in those days, and her lung um, x-rays did not show that cancer. Wow. So that was very disturbing uh, to me. It, I started questioning everything, life and death and, and the dying process and the purpose of people being here and why were children dying, because I was a pediatric nurse, of course. Um, and so, and you know, how to, how to help the grieving family. She was an adopted only child of a, a family, uh, parents who had immigrated from Italy. 
and they just fell to the floor. I, I just, I was just devastated. Yeah. <clears throat> you write that your prayer led you to an inner knowing to see things as multi-layered and multi-directional. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you had a back injury that took you to, um, I guess, a very helpful intuitive chiropractor who put you on a more holistic path in yes. medicine. Yes. He invited me to his meditation group that he had every Thursday evening. And I had no idea really how to meditate. I just, you know, and my <laughs> my husband used to say, well, you know, he meditated. He just would close his eyes, you know, and I was reading a newspaper and that was a, a form of meditation, <laughs> which it can be. Um, but I, I knew that I was supposed to go there. And the other thing about this doctor was that he, I didn't believe in chiropractors at the time, but I had a significant back injury. So I was told by the medical profession that I either needed surgery on my spine, which I did not want, or I would probably not be able to walk properly ever again. And I would certainly never be able to be a nurse again. And that none of those were acceptable to me. So my father had been to this chiropractor for an injury he sustained in his police career. And I went to this doctor. And the first thing he said to me was, you're a healer. And I said back to him, I'm a nurse. <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's your profession, but you're a healer. <laughs> well, was it about that time you discovered that you had this, um, these uh, electric, warm and healing hands? That you talk well, about? I knew that. I knew I had something coming through my hands that comforted my siblings when I was growing, when we were all growing up, and also my patients. I didn't know what it was, though. So he taught me that it was healing energy, and he taught me how to utilize it. And that's when he invited me to his meditation group. I see. I felt um, was just a special invitation because the people that were there at the meditation group understood my feelings and my inspirations and my journey to find out more and more. They were like-minded, so that was wonderful for me. Yeah. Now, at some point, and I'm not sure whether it was before or after your NDE, you went on a retreat and felt a connection with Mary Magdalene. Was that uh, before the NDE? Oh no, that was that was much longer. Um, okay. Well, well, let's let's go to, let's go to your 1988 and yeah. the time you had a re- really remarkable NDE. Tell us about that. Well, I was very sick. I was, but, but I didn't know it. I was working very much. I had private clients. Um, I was from the back injury. I was not able to do hospital nursing anymore. So um, I just decided I was going to ask to teach at community college. And that's a story in in and of itself. (laughs) That's a pretty funny story how that happened. Um, And from the classes that I taught at community college, I started, I was questioned, you know, well, do you have, you know, can we come and see you privately? So I thought, okay, this is my next path. And I was working really intensely with client after client. Um, I was probably the only one in the area where I was living that was doing such a thing. I had already been taught the energy healing techniques that I was utilizing. I was already, you know, leading meditation groups. I had two meditation groups in my home every week. 
and working very hard and writing more uh, programs for me to teach at the college. So when I started feeling unwell, I really didn't pay a lot of attention. I was teaching other people to pay attention <laughs> to their bodies and their signals, and I wasn't doing it. Um, I just thought, oh, well, my gallbladder is acting up because my mother had had gallbladder problems. And next thing you know, I was very ill, couldn't get out of bed one day, and um, I was admitted to the hospital with uh, just a dramatic illness. It was hepatitis, but it was not due to, um, you know, most people have hepatitis from an infection or a problem with their liver due to alcoholism or, you know, something, a drug reaction, something like that. That was not my case. Um, I was, um, and I mentioned the whole detail in the book about how I had been allergic to some herbs I was taking, didn't realize that. Also, I had had a blood transfusion two years earlier from a surgery, um, an emergency surgery, and I had a reaction to the blood. And it just ended up really hurting my liver. So I was lying there in the bed and, um, very, very sick, alone in the hospital room, looking out the window, it was daytime. And I was pretty much feeling sorry for myself. And what, you know, my, my whole private practice was now I didn't know when I could get back to that. So how was I gonna support myself and my children who were in college? And so I suddenly started feeling very strange, just very strange and I felt myself lifting up and I I looked down and there I was my body was on the bed but I was not and I was lifting up and just suddenly finding myself in floating in this hall it was like a a, a hallway and on either side was this huge looked like ball a ballroom two sides and I was being I was gliding on a on a floor of light <clears throat> and on either side of me with huge huge rooms that seemed to have no ceiling it was just filled with light and beams and some of the beings that were there were angelic beings archangels and angels i i could see them very clearly what really um surprised me is that i saw relatives of mine and they were smiling at me and waving to me and putting their arms out like they were just flowing this love to me. One was my grandmother, and she was holding my baby nephew who had died at eight weeks old. And then there were, you know, other relatives, a cousin of mine who had died when she was eight years old, and the little girl who died at 12 years old in my arms. And another little girl that I cared for as a hospice nurse she was there and then um i have the whole story about this little woman who was standing there and she was waving this handkerchief and i immediately knew who she was and she was a patient of mine as, as i was a student and there's this whole story about this handkerchief and how i remembered her and i was just i was feeling so wonderful no pain no fatigue no weariness, no weakness. I was just encompassed in love. 
and at all this light around. And beings that I could see clearly, although they were um, they were translucent. So I knew who they were. Some of them I didn't know. Um, but they looked just translucent in their bodies. As though they didn't really have a physical body, but yet I could make out who they were. And at the far end of this floor of light was this all-encompassing light that was so brilliant. I could look at it, but it was so brilliant. I, I felt like it was going to hurt my eyes, but it, it did not. And it kept like pulling me in, pulling me closer and closer. And I just so wanted to go into that light because I knew at the other side and going through that light would be God, would be heaven, would be and I wanted so much to go. <clears throat> and just as I was nearest than I had been during this journey through this floor of light, I heard this voice. And the voice said very clearly, lovingly, kindly, but firmly, <clears throat> not now, Jean, go back. Sean needs you. And I thought, Sean needs me. That's my son. My younger son, he was in college. He was 18 years old. He was he was fine. And all of a sudden, whew, I was just whisked back. And the, the light and the beings that I had seen just started to fade from my vision. And I found myself coming down into my body in the bed. And I did not want that to happen. I was so confused. I just wanted to go to this unbelievable love and light that I had just been to, <clears throat> didn't understand the message. And I came back and, and I was crying. And this nurse was standing next to me and she said, are you in pain? And I, I just couldn't say anything. I think I shook my head because I, I was confused about what happened. And I knew I couldn't tell anybody because who would believe me? So I just... I guess she went away and I just laid there and, and tried to process this. And it wasn't until 12 years later that I discovered the meaning of that message from the God presence. It had to do with my grandson, who wasn't even thought of at the time. Yeah. <laughs> my son, Sean, was mar got married and within a couple of years they were pregnant. And this little baby boy was born 12 weeks early. And he was <clears throat> very tiny and sick. And they named him Sean. And that was my reason for coming back so that I could help him. And I helped him every single day with energy healing. When I first saw him, before they put him into the NICU for two months, which is the neonatal intensive care unit, um, I just, all of a sudden, a song just came through. And I started singing him this song. And I had the song in the book, all the words that just came automatically. I, the, the tune and everything. And um, <clears throat> do you know, <clears throat> he's now 22 years old, healthy, fit, handsome, spiritual, loving, kind, wonderful. He still remembers every word of that song. 
Oh. Yeah. Terrific. Uh, yes. And then also after that near-death experience that I had, my life just changed. Um, I just was able to see visions more, much more clearly. And I had a lot of spiritual visions that came to me. And I, you know, I was still doing, even though I was in private practice by that time, I was um, helping sometimes doing uh, private duty nursing for people who were um, actually in their dying process. And I was able to validate everything that they saw, everything that they heard, everything that they were telling me was real for them. And I, I really want nurses and doctors to know that that is the truth for their patients. When they are going, making that transition, part of them is still here in the dimension of earth. Part of them is going to that dimension of spirituality, heaven, whatever people want to call that. It's a, it's life continues. And I've been with many nurses who didn't understand that. And they weren't, you know, the patients then felt like they had to shut down and not tell anybody, just like I did during those, you know, the, that near-death experience. But it's so real. And it's so, I know that, the, you know, some docs like to think that it's the brain, you know, closing down. And, um, it's, you're going through a major transition. So you're in between worlds. That's how I see it. And did yes. see it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jean, uh, uh, many Christian uh, NDEers that I've talked to often come back from their experience with a belief in reincarnation that they'd never even considered before. And you've explored some of your past lives. And uh, you mentioned uh, the other day about the 10 doors you saw. Tell us about that and what's behind those doors. Well, it was more like, um, and I still see it in my mind so clearly. I was actually in a bathtub. (laughs) A nice relaxing bath. I was pondering this, you know, other lifetimes and all time is now and time on earth is a construct. And suddenly I was given a vision. It was um, a round, it looked to me like a huge round stage. And I, as Jean Keegan Daly, was in the middle with a spotlight shining on me. This is my life now. And I looked around and there were doorways. All the doors were open. Doorways all around this huge circular stage. And they were me in all these other lifetimes. Uh, some of them I had already explored. There were many, many more than I thought that I had. And I knew that each one was influencing me in some way and that I was influencing that life in some way. Since all time is now, which is a difficult concept to understand with our finite minds. Yet I do believe that it's real. And it's, you know, some of the other 
lifetimes that I know I have lived, and I know it because I felt it viscerally, emotionally felt it, um, could see every single detail without trying. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know where I was going. I was just would just be asked to show me, show me a life that I'm learning from in this lifetime, and I'd be shown something. So um, some of them were very, very dramatic. You know, um, I drowned in one lifetime, and that helped me to understand my fear of being in water. I love water, but I almost drowned in this lifetime when I was 12 years old, and my father rescued me. So um, that was one. There are many other lifetimes that I've explored that are pretty long stories. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you mentioned one to me about uh, how you had been afraid of cats. Tell us uh, that story. Yes. Well, I did not understand. I mean, I grew up with dogs, and I love and I love dogs. Cats, to me, even from childhood, were mysterious and scary to me, and I didn't know why. Little kittens. They were adorable, and I couldn't understand why I was so afraid of them. And this just continued on and on. And any time I was around a cat, I could feel just shivers going through me. So one time I was in a class, and this class was, or maybe it was a meditation group, um, it was back in the, I guess, the early 90s. And we were in this person's home. She had a very large home, and there were probably 15 of us members of this class that was being taught. And I didn't know there was a cat in the house, and this cat jumped on me, and I just froze. I just froze with panic, and I was really embarrassed, you know, and the woman came over to me who owned the cat. She took the cat down, and she said to me, I'm going to do a diffusion. There, this this reaction of yours, she said, it goes back to another time. So, the class was um, the, the, rather the woman who was teaching the class, what had been my instructor in this one brain stress diffusion process. So she just started with muscle testing, and took me back to a time, and I really felt it. I felt it. She took me back to a time where I saw myself walking down a, a, another, like it looked like a, a dungeon down the hallway. And I had my hands tied behind my back with a rope. And I had on like a cloth or a, a sack, some kind of cloth sack. And I was barefoot. And my hair was very long, and I was very scared. And what I realized was I was being taken into one of the Roman arenas where they had the lions. And I was actually pushed. I could feel it. I was pushed into that arena. And the lions just came and devoured me. And that, that was so real, sitting there in the chair in this woman's kitchen. <laughs> Shaking. I was just shaking and shaking and shaking and crying. And I knew I had died that way in that lifetime. However, she did this diffusion and 
I'm much better with cats right now and had been since that time. I did develop an allergy, so I still don't have a cat, but I'm <laughs> No, I'm not afraid of them anymore. <laughs> so, that was pretty dramatic. <laughs> yeah, yes. So when you say the lives that you've lived and are the life you're living now uh, are actually trapped in a timeless way that each one can influence the other, do you think your adjusting to your fear of cats would have somehow eased the uh, anxiety of you dying at the claws of the lions? Great question. Yes, I do. I do. Because I remember I was, I was exactly, you know, one of those Christians in that time period that were prone to these lions. Yes. And I really, um, I really felt like I was, I was going to this, Place that was going to be um, free of fear and free of um, suffering, and it was. I don't know in that lifetime if I knew there that the word heaven existed, but I know that God existed, and I guess in that lifetime I still had the image of God as I did as a child in this lifetime. And this lifetime, I just needed to know more and more and more and more about that. About the, the whole um, infinity uh, understanding, the whole universal support process, the whole co-creatorship with, with the godness. The... Um Lest the audience think you've always been in all your lives a Christian, you mentioned another story in which you, as a witch doctor, saved a village from a charging tiger. Yeah. Tell us about that one. Okay. That was, um, that was in a guided process. Again, back in the 1980s, um, and I, I can't remember the name of the process, but it was by a woman who um, was taking me into a very deep meditation. <clears throat> mm. And I started to see, actually, I started to see the inside of a mask that was on my face. And I also knew that I was in a man's body. And I saw myself with a, you know, holding something. I thought it was a rod at first. Maybe it was a spear. But I knew that it was, I was some kind of a uh, person who was in charge of this community of people. And it was very primitive, very primitive. And there was a tiger that was charging. The people were very afraid. And it was up to me to save the village of these people. I knew that and I could feel it. And the woman who was, you know, she wasn't guiding me through this vision. She was just taking me down to the the deepest level of meditation and I was telling her and she got the story of what I was seeing and she was telling me later that my heart rate I didn't know that she was checking my pulse my heart rate was really increasing I was sweating and I was sweating behind the mask so I was afraid in that lifetime and somehow I saved the tiger I started communicating with this tiger 
Now, this was in primitive times, so I don't know how that happened. I just know that that experience was very, very real. So that's another cat, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> But in this one, you overcame the tiger rather than the lions overcoming you. That's true, yes. And perhaps that incident influenced the death in the Colosseum, too. Yes, yes, good point. I do believe that, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned earlier there was a time when you uh, identified with Mary Magdalene and also that you felt you had lived at the same time as they, and that you had, you had visited with them or met them perhaps? I always felt um, that Mary Magdalene was different than she was portrayed by religion. I just always felt that she was not a prostitute, that she was a, a good woman. And I couldn't explain that. I just couldn't, ex- I just felt like I sensed it. I knew it. And I felt like we had been friends, but I had no one to talk to about that. So I just kind of let that go. And I also felt the same way about Mother Mary. I was always felt connected with her and energy and presence. And I felt the same way with Jesus. And I used to call him Master Jesus. And sometimes I got in trouble with that, <laughs> but by that, you know, what do you mean? What are you calling him Master Jesus for? I just felt like he was always by my side and that he was also um, different than portrayed uh, in many stories in the Bible in the sense that he was um, fully a a man here, yet on a very much higher level than the people that surrounded him in that time period. And I also felt like I had been learning from him and following him. And again, there was no way to prove it. There was no way I wasn't dreaming it. It just would come to me. It would just come to me. So um, I also felt very upset at seeing pictures of Jesus on the cross. Like I wanted to save him. I wanted to not have him suffer. And then I would have a thought, well, you know, maybe he transcended his body, maybe he transcended his physical body. So these thoughts going on. And then about five or six years ago, I was in um, New Mexico at a retreat. And the woman who was leading the retreat was talking about Mary Magdalene. And I just started crying with this deep, deep missing her, missing her. And I felt that she had been my friend and I wanted her again. I wanted her near me again. And then all of a sudden I felt um, the presence of Jesus and the presence of Mary. And I saw myself walking with them. And this was not from any story that I had read. It just, it happened in the moment. I know some of the people that were with me in this retreat, especially my good friend who I traveled with, she just put her arm around me and everybody let me just be in that moment. I didn't have to explain it. I just felt again, that visceral response that it was very real. I still feel very connected with them. I always will. Now I have never had, um, 
an interview with someone who's done soul rescue through Monroe Institute. So I would like for you, if you would, to tell us about that and uh, perhaps one or two of the uh, uh, souls that you rescued. Wow. I was totally unprepared for this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My friend who was with me in that uh, experience with Mary Magdalene, we decided to go to the Monroe Institute together. We traveled down and there was a program called the Gateway Voyage, Gateway Voyage Program. It was five days and six nights of self-discovery using this hemi-sync method that Robert Monroe, who established this world-renowned Monroe Institute, had developed. So um, we were in a bedroom with the the, um, walls had an inset and that the bed was in there and the the walls in there I believe were painted black and then there was a heavy black curtain that you could pull across so you would be you know just like almost entombed in this bed and on this mattress that was very comfortable but there were lights in there so you could turn the light on um and I decided not to and then in the wall was a um a recording of Robert Monroe taking you down, down, down into meditative states. And there was, uh, they were called focus states. And there he took us down to focus 21. I had no idea what to expect, if anything. And all of a sudden, I saw myself flying, or, or I felt myself flying, I felt myself flying. And first thing that happened was, um, actually, I'm, I'm looking in here. I just set my attention to be open, and I had this wonderful sensation of flying, and I saw this hat. It looked like a very large straw hat, and I realized it was on top of the head of a woman who seemed to be Vietnamese or Chinese, and she was very distraught and crying. And just, you know, I go into much detail in the story of what I saw, I was actually there, and there was a part of me in spiritually that was literally there. Um, and I realized it was the Vietnam War, and she was looking for her husband. And I even got names. Her name was uh, Su Ling, and her husband's name was Hoon. And neither one of them knew that they were dead. They were between worlds. And I was able, the story goes on as to how I saw him and how I was able to lead her to him and how I was able to assure them that they were safe and that it was okay to go to the light. And I helped them to go into that light. So they went from suffering and and both of them were wounded and both of them were dead. But they didn't realize it. They were just that in-between state. She was searching for him and holding on to that hope she would find him. And he was just bewildered. And I, we, I saw everything. I saw the bridge that he was on. I saw the people running around. I saw distress everywhere. But my focus was on joining these two and getting them to go into the light. That was the first of the visions that I do you think that they were uh, that you were back in their time, or was or were they just reliving that incident over and over again? You were visiting them in the present. 
That's a good question. I felt at the time like I was back in their time. Mm. And, you know, since there really is no time in the universe, spirit, um, they were just wandering. And I, I don't know for how long in our time construct, um, but I felt like I was very, very much meant. I was the vehicle, the channel to help them to finally go to the light and find the peace. And, you know, once they were connected, I, they each believed that they couldn't go any further until they found each other. So I felt that I was that instrument that helped them do that. So you were able to bring them together somehow? Yes. Yes, I was. And did they realize that you were there? Yes. Oh, yeah. interesting. I mean, I, I don't know that I, I, I guess I spoke to them. I didn't tell them my name or that, you know, I was from you know, this century or anything like that. I just said I was there to help them. They did not need to be afraid any longer. And they were pretty shocked that they were dead. But they were so delighted to find each other. And there were no communication problems. I mean, you were, they were probably spoke only Vietnamese and you yeah. English, but no. Now the next one you mentioned in your book well, it goes back to 1841. That was Christopher Mellon. Tell, yeah. tell us about that. Oh, my. I was, I was doing this again, um, you know, going into the Spocus 21. And again, I don't know how I got there. I just know that I started seeing this field. And there was a little boy. Um, he was, I could see him so clearly. I was flying and I saw this landscape and little boy was standing um, against a tree, I believe, um, on the bank of a river. And uh, he was forlorn. He was just like, lost. And he was maybe, I don't know, six or seven years old. I, I think I knew it when I wrote the book, um, his age. And his hair, I knew that the year was 1841. And his hair was thick and brown, like a mop top kind of thing. And I on a farm and right next to him I, I didn't want to frighten him so I just said hello and he saw me and then um, I'm actually checking my book here to see um, out of the side of my eye I saw a big silo like it were a vat it was either cornmeal or grain of some kind and I started choking I just started choking and that uh, then I knew that that's how he died he fell into that and died, and he did not know he was dead. He just didn't know where he was. He didn't know where he belonged. He didn't. He was just all alone. So I was able to, this, this light appeared, and I was able to help him to trust me that I could guide him safely to that light, and that he would be very happy and at peace and safe. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And then well, the third story, I don't know if we have time. Yes, I think we do. Becky Brown and parents. Becky Brown, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now this was the third. Um, I got into this uh, Focus 21 a little easier this time, or more quickly, and then I saw this sparsely populated wooded area. And I was flying again, and 
somehow I I thought I was in Tennessee or maybe Alabama. It was one of the southern states. And it was, uh, there was a white clapboard house. I saw it so, I can still see it in my mind so clearly. And in the front yard, there was a car, an old car. And I think I saw the playpen first. It was a makeshift playpen out of rope. It wasn't the kind you buy at the store. It was constructed out of a rope. And I was pretty fascinated by the structure of it. Um, it was between two sturdy trees, and it had a wooden floor and braided rope that were holding in this little baby. She was about two years old. And I knew immediately her name was Becky Brown. I don't know how, just Becky Brown. And when I called her name, she turned around. And she was wearing this adorable little, it was a red and white checkered sunsuit with a white cotton lace embroidery around the bib of the outfit just like you would see in, in a little girl in the 1950s. And um, her skin was very pale and her eyes were like hollow. I knew she was dead and she didn't know it. And then I just knew that there was someone around her. Um, so I asked her where, was, where were mommy and daddy and she pointed, she pointed to the car and I found their bodies. They were lying down. The parents were right there and they had a dazed kind of a look on their face. They were dead as well. And they all wanted to be together. So I helped them. I mean, there's more detail in the story, but I helped them get together with their little baby girl. And I really walked them to the light. And it was just the most... Uh, these three processes of being able to rescue these trapped souls was so amazing to me and so real. I shared it with everyone in the group because we used to get together and you know share our, our experiences. Um, so I had another, way before the Monroe Institute, I had another experience. Oh my goodness, this was back in the early 70s I was um, I think I was getting ready to go to bed and I heard somebody's voice hollering help it was not in my family it was not in my house it was in my ear so I thought okay I better go into meditation and I literally was taken underneath the water there was a woman that was trapped her bathing suit was snagged somehow or maybe it was her apparatus she was a deep sea diver um was trapped on some reef and i she was drowning so i helped her let go and she did survive and i knew she was in california how did you help her i mean this was just a a vision you had right you, you didn't yeah. leave your body well, I did. You did? Ah. I did. I, yes, I left my body, and I was able to go. I just knew right where to find her, and I went under the water. I never told anybody this. It's not in my book. This no. Is the first that's, time I'm telling this story. <laughs> that's a, remarkable. And I remember it so well, and I was able to unhook her. She was getting just more twisted up in this bramble bush that was under the water, and I guess it was the ocean. I'm not sure. Um, 
and I was able to push her up. I literally remember pushing her up and she was coughing and I helped her go to the shore and then I, I didn't see anymore. So your ethereal body was able to deal with a physical problem. Yes. Wow. That was, and, and those days in the early 70s, that was a little spooky to me. Wow. <laughs> I think it's a it's a little spooky uh, spooky right now. That's that's amazing. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Um, there was there was one one other. I don't know if we have time. Well, if you could tell the story quickly about how because I thought it juxtaposed very nicely with the with Becky Brown. You freed their souls from a wrecked car, but a, a large black angel saved you from wrecking your own car. Maybe you could tell us that story. Oh my, yes. Um, This was, I think, in 2011. I was driving to my son's house. He lived about a half an hour away. And as I was driving down a road, a highway that I was traveling on many times, um, it suddenly started to sleep, rain and sleep. It was winter time. And there was a part of the road that went up like kind of an incline. And as I was approaching that incline, suddenly I knew that there was something very wrong. And when I got to the top of the incline, I saw, I started sliding, and I saw many cars had crashed. They They were just crashed into each other. It was awful. People were screaming. And I couldn't seem to stop my car. And all of a sudden, my car stopped. And... Without me doing anything that I can remember, it went right across, it skidded off to the left side and went all the way across seemingly by itself to the right side and ended up right smack next to the, um, the guardrail. Hmm. And I was really shaken and I started to call 911. I got my phone out to call 911 and all of a sudden this bright light from the left of me started shining and I looked over and there was this large black gentleman with a brilliant white coat looked like a doctor's coat and pants and he was standing under a light and he came over to me I he was in the middle of all this and he just walked over to me and he said do not get out of the car all I want to do is help people and he said do not get out of the car you're safe and I just thought oh my god how am I going to get out of here and I heard the ambulance coming and he told me not to touch the steering wheel I remember that he was very kind and very gentle but he was stopping traffic like he was putting his hands out so no one else was going to get involved in this uh, this multi-car accident and all of a sudden I was on the end of the road. I don't know how my car got there. And I turned around and I was just amazed. I turned around and the light was gone, the man was gone, and I believe he was an angel. And when I read in the paper the next day, there was not one single fatality from that multi car accident. And people were not severely injured. Wow. And my car didn't have a dent on it. And I Finally composed myself enough to drive to my son's house, and that's when my little granddaughter, who was then nine years old, 
just brought me tea and my daughter-in-law gave me some aspirin and they were just trying to <laughs> and I was, oh my god <laughs> so yeah so, now mm-hmm. we have just time enough i think uh, to hear the robin story which oh, is an amazing story. I just couldn't believe it. But uh, it's the power of Reiki too, which is an important point to make. And I will just skim through because I know that we don't have much time. But it, all the details are in my book. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I was feeling discouraged one day because I was, um, I believe um, I had been seeing some clients who were really, really sick. And I just wanted so much to help them more than I, it looked like I was helping them. And I was taking a walk. I walked every morning. I was taking a walk. And I was just asking. I said, you know, could you just give me, uh, you know, some kind of a demonstration here, God, you know, to, so that I can know that I'm really helping them. You know, many of them were people that were in, you know, terminal diseases. They were coming to my home for for the work that I was doing. And um, although they appreciated that and they could feel somewhat better, I just felt like, uh, what else could I do? And all of a sudden I saw this little bird, this little robin on the side of the, the road where I was walking near my home. And he looked like he was dead or she looked like she was dead. And I thought, oh my goodness, I have to help this for Robin. I picked her up. No, I didn't. I went back to my house and I got a box and I, and I put, you know, uh, sheets in it or towels in it or something. And so I went back and I picked her up and I put her in the box and she was barely breathing. And I just, I detail in the book, you know, I called a veterinarian and I said, what can I do? And he told me, well, you know, she's like, we're going to die. And he, anyway, so I did a lot of healing on this Robin. And I kept checking and every half, every half hour, she would just start, you know, moving a little bit better. I thought her neck was broken. Her wing was certainly broken, but she started just, just recovering before my very eyes. And I kept on doing my healing work and talking to her and talking to her and asking for angelic helpers. And I knew they were all there until all of a sudden, she just flew up. She flew up and flew away. And I felt, oh my, thank you so much. I was just so grateful. So the next morning, I was making breakfast, getting ready for my day, and there was all this racket outside. I didn't know what that was. I went to my front door, and there were at least a 100. I didn't count them, but my front porch was filled with robins. And they were all, you know, talking, squawking, what, you know, the noise they make. And I, as soon as I opened the door and looked at them, they stopped. Just all stopped. And they started just like almost bowing their heads, like in, in sync. (laughs) 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 Standing there like, oh, am I really seeing this? (laughs) All squabbing their heads. And then. I felt, I just felt like they were saying thank you. And then they all flew up and somebody said to me, well, that's not the way robins go. They don't fly in groups like that. And I said, well, I'm just telling you what I saw. 
<laughs> that day, that day they did. <laughs> I loved your book, but I'm not sure about that Robin story. Oh, I love that. I love that story. That, and and they just wow. up all together in unison. It was <laughs> like, oh, my. even now I get just goosebumps, you know, thinking about it. Wow. Oh, Gina, I'm afraid we are out of time for today. But uh, tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and your practice and your book, Reflections of a Seasoned Soul. Well, I would be delighted to. My book, since I self-published it, is online. It's not in bookstores yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's online, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Books a Million. Um, I'm proud to say that it has five stars on Amazon. And in between me publishing my book and now, I had open heart surgery for replacement of my aortic valve, so I wasn't very able to market my book at all um, then. So it is uh, also, I'd like to give my, my um, I will have a website very soon because I'm newly certified as a Dream Builder Transformational Life Coach through the Brave Thinking Institution with Mary Morrissey. And that was a six-month, very intensive training and study, and I'll be opening that part of my my, uh, work in several months from now. Um, So the website will be www.genedaily. It doesn't have the Keegan in there. genedaily at dreambuilder.com. And that will be available by the middle of November. Very good. My website, I mean, I'm sorry, my um, my email where somebody can write to me is J, the letter J, Life Spirit, L-I-F-E-S-P-I-R-I-T at Comcast.net. And I'd be delighted to hear from anybody. And if you would put, if you want to write to me, just put in the subject line you know, NDE listener, something like that. So I know it's not a, <laughs> not another kind of email. <laughs> Jean, oh, thank you so much. This has been really, uh, really fascinating. Okay. Thanks for sh- sharing this uh, amazing spiritual adventure that's that's been your life thus far. Uh, adventures in my book, and I, I actually have a lot of uh, stories that I didn't write in this book that will go into a second book when I write that. So, um, you know, I just uh, suggest everyone who wants all the details and my journey and and the other wonderful visions and experiences that I've I've had. Um, And there are three stories of hospice patient, my three most memorable patients. Yes, they're they're really remarkable. Remarkable transformation that I love. So, Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, (laughs) If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button or subscribe to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can listen and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to like, follow, and share on our, our new NDE radio Facebook page and discover our Facebook group and links to our YouTube channel while you're there. Uh, And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying 
Thanks for listening.